I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania. I'm Andrew Keats. I'm Scott Lewis. We host the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Every Friday, we break down the news we think you should know in San Diego. Things like housing, homelessness, education, election, political drama, the big stories that dominate the news, and the ones that slip under the radar. We also interview local lawmakers, policy experts, and other investigative journalists. The Voice of San Diego podcast, every Friday. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. From Sosalio in San Diego, welcome to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, bringing you true stories from the live monthly showcase of the same name. I'm Justin Hudnell, and we have a delicious buffet of stories for you this month, slathered across two episodes, heated up and served from our November 2018 live show, Will It Fit? It's the perfect collection of stories to plug into your ears while you walk the dog around the block this Thanksgiving, just as your uncle starts explaining how Jewish space lasers work. Our first course is coming from Ms. Tiffany Cooper, titled, In Defense of My Innocence. Here's Tiffany. In the fall of my freshman year of high school, I heard a statistic that two out of every three teens will have had sex by the time they graduated. I wanted to be special and different, just like everybody else. So I decided I was going to be part of that 33.3% virgin minority. I even went so far as to make a bet with my know-it-all brother that I wouldn't have sex with anyone until high school was officially over. A sort of American Pie pact. I envisioned myself triumphantly walking across the stage at my graduation ceremony, one hand grabbing my diploma and the other flipping the bird to my brother. So for four years and 50 bucks, I waited. As the end of senior year approached, I preemptively scheduled my first pelvic exam. When I told my mom I was going to start taking birth control pills, she exclaimed, Are you having sex? Who are you having sex with? No, mom, I calmly explained. I just know that someday I will soon, and I want to make sure I don't accidentally get pregnant. Use a condom, she demanded. Mom, I'm not having sex. When I do, I'll tell you. She was not so easily convinced, but unbeknownst to her, my brother and I had money writing on it. At the office visit with the reproductive nurse practitioner, I had never been so uncomfortable. Lying on my back, naked from the waist down under a sheet of waxy fabric-like paper, legs spread wide, feet in stirrups, cold, lubricated plastic pressing into me. Have you ever used a tampon? The NP said to me, like an accusation. <laughs> um, yes, is that bad? I asked, thinking the worst possible outcomes of toxic shock syndrome. Wait right there for a moment, she said, like I was going anywhere without my pants. As she rolled her chair back, popped open the door wide enough to stick her head out and yelled down the hall to one of her nursing aides. Can you grab the extra small speculum? Thanks. <laughs> then she changed her gloves and nonchalantly said to me, we want to keep that window nice and tight. <laughs> Did she just call my vagina a window? We didn't learn that in sex ed. They didn't talk about vaginas being too tight or window-shaped. Penises were bananas, sure. But vaginas were windows? My teenage brain raced. Now just try to relax. I tensed up. Taking a deep breath, I threw my head back against the exam table. Looking up, I tried to distract myself by counting the tiny holes in the ceiling. I needed to get through this. If I couldn't handle the discomfort of a simple pap smear, how was I ever going to handle having sex? I had to do it. Do it for science, I told myself. Do it so you can have orgasms with other people. You want this. You can't have pleasure without a little pain and suffering. But I felt like I had already suffered for years biding my time in solitary confinement. All throughout junior high and high school, I spent countless hours masturbating damn near daily to keep the hormone monsters at bay. Sometimes all I needed was my right hand and my imagination but usually I prefer the auditory and visual stimulation that came from watching porn. Flawless skin, long, blonde-haired women kissing and caressing each other in areas I didn't know you could. Left my crotch tingling and throbbing. I was practically nocturnal trying to avoid the other members of my household while I quietly rubbed one out to the somewhat scrambled but still watchable adult entertainment channels of the 90s. 
When it was too risky to attempt to watch the Spice Channel, I would settle for having to masturbate to Will Smith during episodes of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> or Tim the Toolman Taylor from Home Improvement. I like the way he grunted. After I won the celibacy bet and framed the $50 bill my dutiful brother begrudgingly gave me, I tried several times to convince the supposedly too horny to function male cohorts to put me out of my misery and just take my V-card. Not one of them would do me a solid and just fuck me. They said I was too far gone, that I had waited so long I ran the risk of becoming a stage four clinger. No teenage boy wanted that kind of responsibility. I detested the notion that having sex meant automatically attaching to someone, so I convinced myself that I was holding on to my hymen out of sheer fear of the avalanche of pain that it would take to break it. If I was ever going to liberate myself from the shackles of sexual prohibition, I needed to find a way to make it hurt less. During my first year at UC Davis, I elected to take an Intro to Human Sexuality course where I was delighted to learn that the vagina can be stretched by using a series of different sized dildos. A dildo. Now I've graduated. I was no longer going to be an immature, tight-windowed virgin. I would have a sophisticated, right-sized vagina. I'd make it a door. <laughs> My first purchase and new sex partner was a gigantic, veiny, fire-engine-red, Duracell-sucking, vibrating tornado of a dildo. I may have overshot. After several failed attempts to even get the head past my opening, I waved the white flag of defeat. Even though we weren't compatible, I couldn't bring myself to throw him away, and I was pretty sure he wasn't recyclable. So I hid Big Red in the top drawer of my dorm room dresser and desperately hoped no one would find out that I needed to use a sex toy to normalize my insides. In the dorms, I was sort of known as one of the sex-savvy co-eds because I was very outspoken about sex, especially safer sex despite still technically being a virgin. Minor detail. <laughs> Regardless, my reputation for being like a drill sergeant of the sexual safety patrol was solidified when my mom sent me a box of 50 flavored condoms for Valentine's Day. As a show of my fraudulent fearlessness of penetration, I arranged the condoms on my door to spell out sex in all capital letters, in case anyone passing by wouldn't get that these condoms were intended for intercourse. My roommate was mostly okay with the condom door, but had me take it down whenever her parents came to visit. She was another teenage virgin, but she was very Catholic, and thus saving herself for marriage. That lasted about three months when she moved in with me. <laughs> By the time spring break of freshman year of college rolled around, I was 19 years old, and it seemed like I was the only one left in the whole world who hadn't had sex. On my eight-hour-long drive back home to San Diego from Davis, I decided enough was enough. I was going to have sex with Kenny, an amateur rugby player and stoner film student from SDSU I had met during winter break at an ugly Christmas sweater party a few months prior. He was cute, clean, well-mannered, simple-minded, and had, already had his dick inside my mouth with a mint-flavored condom, so I figured he was good enough for the real deal. Best of all, he was someone I was sure wouldn't hurt me, at least not emotionally. It would be like using arm floaties to learn how to swim in the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> Nothing too deep. Unfortunately, he was also a heavy drinker, and the night we were supposed to hang, he whiskey duck got the better of him. We rescheduled our casual encounter for the following night, and I stayed out party hopping with a group of debaucherous non-virgin friends until the wee hours in the morning. I was one of the last girls standing when we bumped into a half-acquaintance of my brother's at an after-party on Frat Row. We previously sucked face exactly three times during my senior year of high school when he was in his third year at State. He felt like unfinished business that was now aching to be checked off my list of things to do. As the night of King's Cup, Lip Cup, and just drink alcohol from your cup was winding down, he told me I needed to come see his new apartment since he had to get new digs after being kicked out of student housing. What a rebel. I swooned. So, are you still a virgin? He asked as we walked away from the bright lights of the party and into the shadows. Yep, I said. Well, that sucks. Yep, I said again. I'm such a sucker for a sweet talker. <laughs> After a series of slobbery, drunken, deep throat kissing, we began to quickly chair off each other's clothes. Fully naked and swallowed up by near total darkness and a turbulent sea of pillows and blankets, we landed on his bed with a hard thud. 
He very carefully and ever so slowly glided his penis into my vagina. I felt a wave of agony come up from my core. My insides were on fire. Automatically, I looked away like I was getting my blood drawn on the flu shot to try and lessen the pain. As I gazed out at his bedroom window, I thought about how I was glad I was inebriated. The alcohol probably helped my muscles relax enough to allow him to get about halfway inside. After a few painful thrusts, I told him I had reached my threshold. He obliged and reversed out of me. The fire was out, but the embers still singed my pain receptors. Exhausted and drenched in a mixture of sweat, blood, and other secretions, I turned over on my stomach. It was time for sleep. I inhaled my accomplishment and sighed a deep breath of relief. My face nuzzled up to one of the pillows, and with a half-smile, I closed my eyes. I did it. The scarlet V that was burned into my chest faded away. I was a free woman. Not more than a few seconds after I flipped over, faster than I could react, he launched on top of me and shoved his penis into my rectum. I yelped like a hurt puppy as tears burst from my wide eyes. Immediately, my brain started to rationalize what had just happened. Maybe he wanted to try a different position, one that would hurt less. He just slipped and missed the mark. We did use a lot of lube, and the distance between the two openings was less than an inch across. Easy mistake. Maybe he thought we try anal instead. All the cool kids are doing it. What even is virginity, really? The butthole isn't a sex organ like your vagina, so it's okay. That didn't count as a violation. I searched for any explanation that wouldn't take away my newfound womanhood and render me a victim. I blacked out. Moments later, I found myself on the floor feeling around for my clothes as he aggressively stripped the bed. I helped him carry the laundry to his car as he insisted he had to do it that instance at his parents' house. This was around 3 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. I went along not daring to question his motives. I felt like we both just covered up a crime and I was the only one who was going to be convicted and sentenced for life. He dropped me off at my friend's dorm, aptly dubbed Crappy Chappy, and with blasé exchanges of good to see you, and keep in touch, we, he swiftly departed. Later that day, I went over to Kenny's apartment like we planned. I felt obligated to carry on like nothing had changed. Both the consensual and non-consensual acts, sex acts needed to say a secret or else he'd tell everyone how much of a slut I was and probably never talk to me again. We fooled around for a bit, then he grabbed a condom and playfully asked, are you ready for me to take your virginity now? I feigned a smile and nodded. It hurt like hell. On my drive back to Davis, I called my mom to tell her I was now sexually active and she didn't need to worry because I used protection just like she instructed. She said she was really proud of me for being a responsible young woman. I left out the part about being raped. Tiffany Cooper. Up next, Tim Cole provides the stuffing with this next dish, up, down, and out. Here's Tim. We met each other on the beach, coming into each other's lives in 1975. I remember the first time my eyes fell upon her. She was spread out on the sand, her beautiful, curvaceous, alabaster form barely visible through the early morning fog. I had waited for this moment for years, yet as I cautiously approached her, my heart began to race faster. My knees were shaking, and suddenly, I was wondering if this was such a good idea. She was my first. Our encounter was thrilling. Her curves and humps were glorious, yet her manner aggressive. It was a two-minute experience, brutal like an earthquake and cyclone combined. She shook and rattled relentlessly and screamed the wind, her fingers pulling back my hair. I was 14. She was 50. But I'm not talking about a woman, but that grand gateway to Mission Beach, that sculpture of wood then known as the earthquake roller coaster at Belmont Park. <laughs> Little did I know this was the beginning of a very long love affair. I'm a native San Diegan, uh, but my dad was in the Navy, so my earliest years were spent isolated from civilization on a remote island off of Alaska. I was also the only child who was very sheltered, so I was conditioned to be a loner and had a penchant for letting my mind wander. Instead of schoolwork, I'd be interested in drawing and making other things that I found to be of interest, like the Jupiter II from Lost in Space, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Mary Poppins. 
my C grades, my C minus grades were a reflection of these obsessions. But in retrospect, they were man magical transports that could lift me up and away from that goddamn iceberg. I saw my first roller coaster on TV's The Partridge Family, and I couldn't wait to get back to the mainland and test my bravado. So anyway, we moved back to San Diego in 1974, and the next year, my eighth grade class took a field trip to Belmont Park, when it was much larger and boasted 25 rides and attractions. As I sat with a trainload of my screaming classmates, it was I who got the bug. Why? I, the skinny outcast who never fit in, always picked on for a joke, but never picked for basketball. I was sad to learn the park went bankrupt and closed at the end of 1976. All the rides were packed up and sold. The rest of the buildings were torn down and the roller coaster was left to deteriorate. In no time, neighbors in the area deemed it a dangerous nuisance, but the owner didn't think that he should be responsible for tearing it down. But soon, it was declared a landmark. In the 11th grade, I read an article where the death of the coaster seemed certain. I ventured out of my safe zone the next day by skipping school and took the bus 16 miles down to the beach for a little photo session. Just a few first and possibly last snapshots of the earthquake from outside the fence as a remembrance of the best ride of my life. I went home happy. I had a tangible memory, thinking my photos would come in handy if I ever wanted to memorialize her one day. Now I was a senior at Chula Vista High, class of 79, thinking that I was going to grow up to be an architect. Uh, I took advantage that the coaster was still occupying beach property, and this time uh, I chose to use it as a drafting project for class. Then I started to sneak on to the abandoned property by squeezing through a very slim gap under the fence and began to photograph, study, and measure the thing to find out what made her tick. Soon, I was finding a way to work the coaster into all my class assignments. I got an A in drafting. The combination of the coaster's art and physics helped me improve my grades in math and history. For my film class, I made a killer ride recreation after I spent three afternoons scooting over every inch of track as high as 70 feet in the air. I got an A for that, too. I did everything I could to try to recapture the memory of what it was like soaring over her hills so I could dream of riding her once again. As with any threatened landmark, some people wanted her saved. But that seemed more unlikely after she was set on fire twice inside one month. I was convinced that her days were numbered. Practically the next day, an odd stroke of luck landed me a job at a restaurant. Of all places, one on the boardwalk in Pacific Beach, only one mile north of the Dipper. This was perfect. Between school and the job, I could fit in an hour or two inside her with my vellum paper and scale ruler, in a way trying to look and feel official like I was her guardian. Her place became my home away from home, a sanctuary where there was no judgment. Each time I went, it was like visiting a ghost that told me stories through all the artifacts that I found every time I went there. I learned something new every day. I followed articles in the paper about redevelopment ideas for the area that ranged from keeping parts of her as a backdrop for a hotel to replacing her with a grassy park with trees. Back then, the notion that the earthquake could once again rumble was inconceivable. The one idea that I thought was lacking was turning the property into a family fun center with miniature golf, slides, and go-karts all going up into and under the idle coaster's framework. So passionate was I about my idea that I stood before the government, nervous as hell, alongside five other developers with their million-dollar plans. I, in a gray suit that I had outgrown, presented my concept painted on a boaster board for only a total of like $5, much to a sea of bemused expressions on the faces of the city council board. But I understood that. I was 20 years old, but still looked like a teenager. All the developers' ideas were rejected. But I met a woman at that meeting who was a recently retired chairman of the Save Our Heritage organization. It had been suggested that a grassroots group be formed to at least study the feasibility of restoring the Giant Dipper. That was the first time I ever heard its original name. She invited me to one of the first Save the Coaster committee meetings in the fall of 1981. The small group of 10 was mostly made up of more historically preservation-minded people, but they found in me the blooming passion of a roller coaster enthusiast. A few months later, we put on a successful presentation before the city council. 
I was back up there this time showing my film and the model that I made to showcase how nice the coaster could fit into any modern setting. By the end of that year, I was the owner of a roller coaster. For the next eight years, this was the place, thank you, this is the place where I belonged. We had hundreds of volunteer work parties and several fundraisers. We scraped paint, splashed on new, and hung the lights. During that time, we protected the landmark from greedy, insensitive developers still eager to seize her property. My favorite moments were getting to host famous roller coaster designers there to give us constructive tips. And the day they filmed a scene from Top Gun next to our construction office where they used pages from my scrapbook as a last minute filler for a bulletin board. And the day a bunch of visiting roller coaster enthusiasts took joy rides on the old cars down the very old tracks. When it came time to restore her machinery, we were given the opportunity to hand the dipper over to a profit-based corporation based at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. And they would take a uh, charge and invest in the project, thus completing the ride's full restoration with the intent to operate it. Impressed with my history, knowledge, and passion, the new San Diego Seaside Company hired me as their very first employee. I was made assistant manager and historical design consultant. That summer of 1990, I was so in my element, at the beach, directing several dozen construction workers as they spent four months sawing and hammering and bolting and painting that wonderful piece of art all back together. It was like watching my dream house being built before my eyes. In the middle of all that, a manager had been hired to be my new boss. He was to be in charge of operations, financials, as well as hiring the staff that was gonna be operating the coaster. Then, on the evening of a very long, muggy day in August, I got to ride her again during test runs for the first time in nearly 15 years, and it was exhilarating. My spirits improved greatly. I had achieved immense success. A few days before the coaster's opening, we had an orientation day for all the new employees. These strangers who just seemed indifferent to the environment with the same kind of attitude that you would have showing up for jury duty. And that's when I started to become ill at ease. I sensed a change in the wind, and I did not like it. The dipper reopened to the public a week later. As I sat in the last seat of the inaugural train, I was confused that I was faking my happiness, like a groom might do at his wedding reception when he realizes that he's not really in love. This was no longer my own private clubhouse. This became a job, and the time that I had proved to be most valuable was over. Now I was faced with the expected duties of being an assistant manager. Once the dipper reopened, I was in over my head because I had no training in business affairs and I made a lot of mistakes. I went from roller coaster designer to training the food and beverage staff how to use a potato peeling machine. But the new manager was patient and he was a great mentor. For the first couple of months, the giant dipper was raking in tons of money. So much, in fact, that my new boss was able to pilfer $11,000 in the first six weeks of ticket sales. He was promptly dismissed. The new manager was a born-again Christian, and I'm gay. <laughs> she did not have the same patience as my old boss for letting me, leading me through my new position. And while I kept my personal life as nobody's business, my association with a few members of a very large LGBT group who dropped in for a night of writing was picked up on by the staff and soon there were rumors and speculations and soon it was like being back at school when I was the subject of gossip and bullying and being mistreated. 18 months later, as the business expanded beyond the coaster, eventually came the day that I was squeezed out. I felt used and betrayed and ashamed. These days I only go down there once in a while if there's an anniversary or a reunion. The Giant Dipper remains my personal success and a great reminder of my catastrophic failure. But the real irony is, as I stand and watch and listen to the screams of riders enjoying her thrills, I long for the days back when she was silent, the days when it was just us, the good old days when I only used to try to remember that experience, that thrilling wild ride that was my first. Give it up for Tilton T-Square, everybody! Tim Cole. Next on the menu, Rose Byler performs her original story, Unscripted. Here's Rose. 
Making something out of nothing. That's your job here. That's what my supervisor told me as he led me around the post-production offices of the LA studio. I became familiar with that saying, as it really was the motto of all the editors and story assistants, which was my official title. A story assistant, at least in the realm of reality TV, helps producers and editors shape the storylines that the producers have set forth for an episode. Then the assistants and editors manipulate all the captured footage into something that brings that story to life. Or if that doesn't work, then the footage can find its own compelling storyline. My job consisted mainly of scrubbing through, which means watching, hours and hours of shot footage, eagle-eyeing it to find moments that, pieced together, could make for a good episode of TV. I was making something out of nothing. I did this for a few different shows. The company highlighted things like ghosts, dogs, cars, treasure hunters, and no, they're not shows you would have ever heard of. I... A lot of cats. I learned a lot about the workings of unscripted TV, which is what we call reality TV. I'd already considered myself a very savvy viewer, hip to the falsities and constructed narratives that such programming uses. However, I hadn't quite realized the extent of the manipulation. An example, in my work with producers and editors, I would need to find footage and dialogue that could help support a storyline of two cast members, which is people playing themselves on the show, getting jealous of one another. A completely fabricated storyline which had no basis in reality. So I would have to comb through several days worth of footage and finally through gnashed teeth, caffeine, awareness, and faith, I'd come across a few words here and there that could be mashed together into a sentence. Frankenbiting, it's called. So let's say I could find a few words like, ugh, are you kidding me? Cast member might have been referring to how hot it was. I'd isolate that dialogue. Another cast member at another time would say, what a bitch, just playfully teasing. Sound bites like that were like finding the end of the rainbow. <laughs> I'd pair those bites with what may seem to be a completely irreproachable look on a participant's face. Somebody squints or turns their head rapidly. I'd isolate those shots. And voila, I have constructed the foundation for a scene of two jealous cast members snarking and giving each other dirty looks. Now there were two problems with this job. First, I was good at it. <laughs> Second, I was having fun. It took me a good year for it to sink in all the damage I was doing. I had been manipulating storylines, creating drama and comedy and conflict and all those things that make for good entertainment. Proud of myself for making solid money and rising up the ladder quickly at the company. But I started seeing the effects as a couple of the shows I worked on went into their second seasons. Reports of the cast not getting along were bubbling up and these weren't cobbled together casts. The main show I worked on contained a cast of sand sculptors who had been working together or at least had known each other professionally for years. They were friends and colleagues, people who had created amazing sculptures for years together, who had fulfilling professional lives, even as teams, long before an unscripted TV crew showed up at their doorsteps. But things always change once you get into a second season because people see that they're wanted, needed. One cast member was elevated to producer status while the others weren't. Why? Because he secretly demanded it after a successful season one while the others did not. New producers came into our company and others left. Our budget grew and so did the outrageousness, something that every network loves because audiences demand it. But how do you bump up outrageousness? You cause some outrage. 
I had been living in LA for a few years and had heard nonstop reports of how the city changes people and too many jokes about Angelinos being assholes. But I had planted in my feet, vowing to never let that happen to me. I was just working in unscripted TV while trying to break into screenwriting. Just like my editor friends at work, and my producer friends at work, and the supervisors at work, <laughs> and everyone else I knew who worked in unscripted TV. But, okay, so fine, I may have been stuck in the job, but at least I was gaining knowledge and experience, and at least I wasn't becoming an asshole like a lot of my coworkers and bosses. That would not happen. I was making something out of nothing, me, and I was staying true to myself. I settled in for a session one day, my desk clean and my tea hot, ready to make some magic happen, and I scrubbed through footage of the cast members working on a sculpture in Las Vegas, the den of sin. The client was a rodeo from Old Vegas on Fremont Street. The sculpture consisted of several parts joined together. There was a rodeo clown, a deck of cards, a roulette wheel, and a rodeo girl riding a bull. Each sculptor had their own portion to work on. All of the participants wore hidden microphones, and often they forgot to turn them off. An unexpected perk of the job was hearing all the things they said when the cameras weren't on them. In this instance, the camera was just pointed in a wide shot on their sculpture. Cut had been called, and the sculptors were milling around, and of course, some of them had left their mics on. I had the idea that maybe I could use something more candid sounding from this time. I was listening and watching, and my idea was not proving fruitful, so I was just about to fast forward. But then I heard on the tape the set, the onset producer, call out to one of the participants. I saw Stanley, the season two cast member slash producer, walk in front of the camera and then out of sight. He walked over to the producer, and I knew this because his mic picked up their conversation. The producer on set proposed a plan that he had cooked up. He wanted to destroy part of the sculpture overnight so that when the cast arrived again in the morning to finish it, they'd have to start all over on a major portion of it, thus providing a thrilling beat-the-clock scenario for the show. Could they finish before the big client shows up? I expected to hear Stanley say, hello, we've worked hard and we're almost finished. Instead, he said, sure, okay, why don't we smash up the bull? I was gonna ask Brad to fix its nose anyway. So easily, had Stanley changed over the course of one season into a part of the club. This, unfortunately, was reality. I sat there, shocked, my headphones on at my desk, wrapped by this sudden new storyline, one I couldn't use for the episode, but I kept listening. What ensued was elaborate scheming over how to stage the destruction and make it appear as if drunken Vegas vandals destroyed Brad's part of the sculpture, leave some cups and debris at the scene, break the barrier that was supposed to protect the artwork. And then Stanley returned to sculpting as if nothing important had just happened. I kept listening and watching, no longer focused on what I needed to do for actual work. I watched through the video and finally, there it was, after a lapse in the footage, the following morning. The sculpture looks great, except for the now demolished bull that had been Brad's piece. Cast arrives at the sculpture to begin work, and all of them freak out over what they see. Even Stanley, who has officially made the, the transition from a know-nothing cast member to a know-everything producer. Oh no, what the hell, I can't believe it. After they all walk around surveying the scene, Brad realizing that there's no fixing this, only beginning again, they talk about how they have to be ready with the art by 5 p.m. They start to panic. Stanley just reiterates that, all right, well, it's go time, gang. They all start to dig in. When Brad stops everything and calls out to that onset producer, 
Now I had to make sure at this point that no one could see me pretty much just watching TV. Not taking notes, not using any of my editing keyboard buttons, not making any new files, just glaring at the screen, wearing my headphones. And yes, Brad left his microphone on. As the camera stayed on a static shot of the demolished sculpture, I could hear the conversation between Brad and the sneaky producer. This looks fishy to me. What do you mean? This whole thing, it doesn't make any sense. We had a security guard and I'm thinking about it and it doesn't make sense and I'm thinking that this is fake, that this is a setup. Dude, what are you talking about a setup? Then Brad calls Stanley over. Brad repeats the same words to him. Stanley also feigns surprise and ignorance. What do you mean a setup? It's like I can hear Brad piecing it all together in his head. You know what I think? I think you guys did this. And I think you knew about it. Stanley says, whoa, whoa, man. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I showed up here same time as you. There's a big pause. Then, tell me you didn't do it, Stan. I couldn't see him. Just the smashed sculpture. But I could hear his voice, the hurt in it, the loss of all his work, what he was so proud of, what he loved to do, not just for the money or the TV show, but for the joy in it, for the friendship. And this wasn't entertaining anymore. It wasn't juicy. You look me in the eye and tell me you didn't do this, and I'll get back there and I'll start over. But I need you to tell me you had nothing to do with this. For just a second, there was quiet. Then Stanley says, I'm telling you, man, I didn't do this. Okay, then. Brad walks back across the frame of the shot and kneels down begins his work. There is no more dialogue between the producer and Stanley. Stanley walks over to his portion of the sculpture and hones his carving. I sat there and instead of snapping out of it and getting back to my own work, I started crying. I was overwhelmed. I felt complicit. I felt as if I had been on that set tearing down Brad's bull sculpture. As long as I was cutting, pasting, frankenbiting, manipulating, crafting pieces of random footage into good TV, I was fucking with these people. It wasn't just silly entertainment where, yeah, audiences know it's fake. I betrayed these participants' feelings. I hid their realities. I was making something out of nothing. My newfound hatred for my job showed immediately. I had, no, I had what is known in the working world as a bad attitude. And I wasn't a team player. I became an asshole. I habitually talked back to shitty TV bosses when you're supposed to just put up with it. I held on because I needed a paycheck but only lasted another few months before I got fired. I haven't watched an unscripted show in six years, refusing to be a part of the manipulation of both the audience and the cast. Except, I did recently discover the Great British Baking Show. <laughs> A handful of well-intentioned and delightful contestants under a tent in a meadow <laughs> bake their lovely hearts out while little sheep bleat nearby in warm, tall grass. And the judges of the participants' efforts are like recipients of great parenting awards. They're supportive, 
giving handshakes and back pats, and at worst, expressing a firm disappointment when a, <laughs> when a cast member leaves their dough in the proving drawer for too long. It's the perfect show to watch before bed. It lulls me to sleep as I think about how this could be real. This could be how things really are. People could be this nice, this undramatic, this good to each other. It's a glimpse of peace. And when one of the contestants' ovens breaks, throwing their project into chaos, that's just a coincidence, right? <laughs> That was Rose Byler. Rounding us out today is Brianne Hayes with their piece, And Your Shit is Stuff. Here's Brianne. My first apartment was a shithole. But it was a big shithole. As B and I visited the place for the first time, we noticed that the apartment had no insulation, a number of openings to the outside that would freely admit all sorts of insects, and a back door that wouldn't lock because, as evidenced by the warped way it sat in the doorframe, it had previously been busted down. We also noticed that it was big and quiet and had neighbors who kept to themselves and, most importantly, had a landlord who seemed impatient to get us moved in and was asking a very reasonable figure for the rent. We had our application in the next day, and a few days after that, I paid the deposit in the first month's rent, handing over the last of my savings in exchange for the keys. Entering our new apartment together for the first time, I couldn't stop smiling. We're home, I said to B. Finally, we're home. At first night, we sat cross-legged on the tile in the corner of the otherwise empty living room in front of a TV that, lacking any furniture to support it, was also sitting on the tile. We had a pasta dinner I had improvised from what little food I'd brought with me while watching a movie on compact disc since it would still be some time before we could afford to get the internet set up. There were no lights in the living room. Darkness enveloped the barren walls. Snippets of dialogue and gunshots emanated from the TV. We only had one twin air mattress, so I piled up all the blankets I had brought with me into a cushion that was little relief from the rigidity of the tile. B insists that I take the air mattress, refusing to move from the blanket pile despite my pleas that we switch. At first night, it was not relief, but dread that overtook me as I was about to fall asleep for the first time in my first apartment. I regretted my earlier words. This place was not a home. No place so empty could be called a home. I had fallen in love with B while we were in high school. She was an introverted, introspective girl with big, understanding eyes. She was known for her melancholy demeanor, but when she was around me, she felt happy. For a while, being with her made me happy, too. We'd spent a blissful senior year together, hopping the bus to explore the city, reading the books we both loved, indulging our shared passion for the movies, and talking about those things in the future we were most looking forward to. Then, graduation came. B's father was evicted from his apartment and no longer obligated to provide for her daughter, his daughter. B had nowhere to go. I thought that I was the only person who truly cared about B. A succession of acquaintances and distant relatives throughout the country put her up for a month or two at a time, but with just a high school diploma, no stable home, and no way to provide for herself, it felt as though the responsibility to restore some normalcy to B's life weighed entirely on me. I worked and I saved, sending B what I could afford to so that she could eat. Compounding the difficulty posed by the distance between us was B's depression, which had begun to encroach on every corner of her life. She turned to video games as a way of coping, and soon the gentle, empathic girl I had fallen for would spend our phone conversations complaining bitterly about teammates, opponents, and developers. She, was, she lost interest in all the things we cared about in high school. She was slowly losing her way from reality. This drove me to do more and more work for her, thinking that once we were living together, B would be freed of the depression that had eroded away her will to live, and maybe I would be able to be in love with her again. That first night in our new apartment, I realized that a home was much more than a place to sleep. For a place to be a home, it had to be full. Warmth, happiness, comfort, laughter, memories. Our empty shithole had none of those things, so for the next six months, my new obsession was filling that shithole with all the things that B would need to be happy. Furniture came first. I raided thrift stores and garage sales for inexpensive furniture, pestered friends for any housewares they could spare. I became very familiar with the least expensive model of any given piece of furniture that IKEA had to offer. 
A day didn't pass without me bringing something special home for B, whether it was as small as a new mug or as large as a defective eight-shelf bookcase I had bought on clearance. This one was in addition to the three bookcases we already owned. I loved books, and B had once loved books, and we always envisioned our home as a place absolutely overflowing with them. A nearby library had monthly used book sales, so I would arrive home from work on the first Saturday of every month with a box stuffed with dozens of books. When there was no more space in the bookcases, I took to stacking each month's haul on top of them. When that became too unstable, I started stacking the books on the floor. While shopping, I'd longingly eye any mattresses I encountered, the prices on their tags, always just beyond my pathetic savings, mocking me. At first, B tried to match my excitement each time I'd bring home something for that one spot in the living room that still felt a little too empty. But my excitement turned to bitterness as it became apparent that the things I was buying were bringing us no closer to one another. As free space rapidly vanished from our apartment, so too did free time vanish from my life. I had two jobs and was going to school full-time. On a typical day, I woke up at 6, left the apartment by 7, and was in class or at work for the rest of the day before getting home around 10. B would spend the day playing video games or sleeping, rarely able to amass the energy needed to leave the apartment. Whenever I got home, I would make B dinner and spend an hour watching TV with her before getting a few hours of sleep. Stop getting my hair cut, stop going to the movies, stop doing my homework, stop reading for fun, stop talking to my best friend, and stop taking care of myself. I knew I couldn't keep living that way. But I kept biting back the bitterness so that it wouldn't become outright hatred for B. She needed me. After being dedicated to her for so many years, it would be wrong to leave her. I was only alive when I was taking care of B. Whenever B's depression worsened, I worked harder. I paid her rent, kept her fed, bought her everything I thought that she might have wanted, but one thing continued to haunt me every time I'd arrive home from work. The one thing we needed that we didn't have. We still didn't have a bed. One night, as I lay awake next to her, not yet asleep, I started sobbing into the fabric of the air mattress. I haven't even gotten us a bed. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm a failure. She just laid on her pile of blankets, silent, waiting for me to stop. When I had saved enough to buy a decent mattress, I insisted B leave the apartment to pick it up with me and she helped me strap it to the top of my car. Sitting in traffic on the way home, trying to make her smile, I played songs from what would have been, what had been her favorite band, Rush, and sang along to them. Her face stayed set. Getting the heavy, slippery thing into our bedroom was a trial, but when it found its place in the corner, displacing the piles of abandoned coffee cups, forgotten takeout boxes, and undone laundry that had previously been there, I wanted to cry tears of exhausted joy. Maybe, I thought, maybe I'd finally gotten B everything she needed to have a home. Months inched by. The mattress had proved to be little comfort. Bitter exhaustion had become my normal state. I began to accept the possibility that I would spend the rest of my life caring for someone who needed me, but who I did not love. So tired was I that I didn't notice B's depression lifting. Then, one night in January, I was sitting with B on that mattress that had once brought me so much hope, when I realized just how low to the ground it was. I moaned. I never bought us a bed frame. I'm sorry. I am so... And she interrupted me, right before the tears could arrive. I don't think that we should be together anymore. The calm and understanding in her voice, a voice I had not heard since high school, surprising me. It would be better for the both of us if we just moved on. Either to soften the impact on me, or just to justify the decision to herself, she told me why. She said I had come to rely on things as a substitute for love. She said I had mistaken caring for someone with providing for someone. She said, instead of the warmth, happiness, comfort, laughter, and memories that I had once promised her, I had only given her more shit. I wanted to protest, and I couldn't. I knew that she was right about all of it. We talked late into the night, and I left the room and crawled over the mountain of shit in our living room to a couch where I laid until morning trying and failing to remember what life had been like without B to provide for. When I got home from work the next day, she was gone. It took another two months to move out of that apartment. The facsimile of a home that I built in the last six months now needed to be dismantled. That apartment had everything in it, but it no longer had B. For the first time, I understood that I had become a hoarder. During my brief tenure in that shithole, I'd managed to amass at least two of every conceivable piece of furniture, so much kitchenware that I could have eaten for months while washing a single dish, and almost 2,000 books. 
I took all this stuff back to my mom's, where I constructed a ceiling-high wall of boxes that dominated the room I had grown up in. Laying on my childhood bed, not the new tear-stained mattress we in my mom's garage, staring at the suffocating volume of stuff I had collected in those six months, I knew that my life was full of shit. So I gave nearly everything away. Every time I took a box away from home and came home empty-handed, I felt as though a little part of me was returning to fill the space that had, that shit had previously occupied. I could sleep again. I was losing weight. I was spending time with my friends. My grades improved. I chose only a hundred books to keep, and they meant more to me for having read them than those two thousand that had stayed trapped on the shelves in that apartment I could stand to think about anymore. For the first time in three years, I was happy. That was Brian Hayes, first time at BAMP. That was Brian Hayes, and that concludes part one of Will It Fit? Make sure you subscribe to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast if you haven't already, and if you would, please leave us a rating and a review. It does help more people find us. If you want to learn more about So Say We All, including how to get involved or in touch, upcoming live shows you can be a part of, and more, pop over to our website, sosayweallonline.com. And just to put a little bug in your ear, the last Tuesday of the month this November is Giving Tuesday. So if you can spare a little bit of disposable income from Jeff Bezos' greedy little clutches and want to share your charitable bounty, we would be so grateful if we made your nice list. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Corley is Sosia Weall's program director. Joe Hudak is our production manager. And Brent Hanafy is our social media manager. Our original music is provided by the turducken of all seasons, Kurt Conan of AMFM Music. Our outro music, Blue Little, comes to us by 1032. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, Conrad Prebis Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We'd love to have you as one of those members. Just hop on over to sosayweallonline.com slash support and sign up at any level of monthly giving to get invites to parties like the ones coming up very soon, merch, and more. Thanks so much for listening. Don't be a stranger. Let's talk again soon.